looking at verses 22 through 33. God's word says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these words, would we be shaped to live out what you would have us live out so that you are seen clearly in our marriages, in our relationships, in all that we do? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, our discussions of Paul's letter to the book, the letter of the Ephesians, well, got that letter to the Ephesians, now called the book of Ephesians, began with lofty discussions. You may remember Ephesians 1.3, which said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul then spent three chapters rejoicing in what God has done for us in Christ. These truths did not say stay in the clouds, though, but they've worked down into the nitty-gritty of our lives. Thus, 4.1, after all this theology declared... Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Paul then discussed how we should be seeking peace with other Christians and explained how God's plans for us are to grow through a local church. Then chapter 4 verse 17 said, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And he gave very specific changes that should occur in our life because of what Christ has done. Changes in our emotions, changes in our work, changes in our relationships, our attitude, and even our mouths. Then chapter 1 said, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then we just finished several weeks looking at chapter 5, 15 through 21, of how to walk as wise people based, of, based on the cross of Christ. And all that is to say that our theology, our understanding of God, should lead to changes in how we live every single day. Now this gets very specific by showing us how Christ's salvation, His love and character, should dictate how we view our marriages, our parent-child relationships, and we'll even see in the future our workplace. So what difference does your Christian faith make on how you view marriage or relate to your spouse? How does your confession of faith in Jesus Christ affect your parenting or being a child? What impact does your allegiance to Jesus as Lord mean for your daily task and workplace? Those are all important issues that we'll be discussing in various ways all the way till Christmas. And we begin this morning with marriage. Yet sadly, marriage has been, 
is, and until Christ returns, will be a vastly misunderstanding of reality. You know, our understanding and appreciation for marriage often pales in comparison to the glory that God intended for it. You know, today we think marriage is merely about people expressing their love for one another. We think marriage is about finding fulfillment and affirmation in life. In 2021, there was an article written in the Atlantic of a woman kind of detailing how she divorced her spouse and left her three children. But throughout the article, she explains that she didn't even know why she was doing it. She ended up divorcing because her life just seemed empty. Something needed to change and she needed to be liberated. But when her husband asked her numerous times, well, for what? She couldn't give any clear reason. Sadly, this is not just non-Christians, but even Christians that have bought into this self-actualizing romantic view of marriage. Yet, this view of marriage is destined to lead to frustration, for it's looking for marriage to provide what is never intended to fully provide. You know, marriage is great, but it's not supposed to be your complete fulfillment. It would be like looking to a hammer to put in a screw. Well, it might get the job done, but not in the way that it was intended. You have misunderstood the purpose. And we all know too well the painful destruction that broken marriages have wrecked on us. And thus, many now are even turning away from marriage. Statistics come out all the time. One Keith recently shared with me is now 40% of young adults think marriage is an outdated tradition. And 85% don't think you need to get married to have a fulfilling and committed relationship. You know, God has given us a good gift of marriage. But we've structured life and marriages in such a way that the good gift no longer seems good. So we need to return to and understand God's good purposes for marriage. If you have a bulletin, you'll see on the back, we're going to look at four things this morning. Marriage is a partnership Marriage is for pleasure, marriage is for procreation, and marriage is a picture. First, marriage is a partnership. And to understand God's purpose for marriage, we have to go back to the beginning. So turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Because to understand marriage, we really need to go back to the beginning here. Genesis 1. As you know, there are six days, and after each day, God gives a summary statement. Look at verse 10. At the end of verse 10, it says, And God saw that it was good. Then look down at the end of verse 12, the end of the second day, and God saw that it was good. Sorry, that was the third day. Verse 18, And God saw that it was good. Or look down at verse 21. The end of the fifth day, and God saw that it was good. Or look down at verse 25, the end of the sixth day, and God saw that it was good. And then look down, there's the summary of everything, verse 31, and God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. So in creation you see good, 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 everything is very good. But then earlier we read... Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, and look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good 
even before sin entered into the world, there was a problem in this creation. Something was not good. And what's not good? That the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Yet, notice something interesting. Before God makes that helper fit for him, what does God have Adam do? He has come before Adam, all of the animals, and Adam names every single one of them. You know, he had to say, aardvark, albatross, alligator, work his way down, and then zebra, zebu. He wrapped them up all up, A to Z, named all the animals. And Adam probably felt worn out. He probably wanted to come home and just crash on the couch and tell... Well, who could he tell about his day? Because besides being exhausted, another thing happened. As each one came by, Adam was forced to notice that this one's not like me. This one's not like me. This one's not like me. There was no one else to be there for him, to help him. Yes, all animals are great. Dogs may even be a good friend, but none of them was like him. So verse 21 tells us that God caused Adam to fall asleep and he took one of his ribs and formed the woman. Matthew Henry beautifully writes, The woman was made from the rib he'd taken out of the man, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. After forming the woman, God then brought her to the man. And Adam responds with astonishment and joy. Because here is one that fully complements him. You know, they are both fully equal in worth before God, but yet different and distinct. You know, Some find frustration in the differences of the sexes and some deny that they even exist. Yet anyone with an open eye can recognize that in numerous ways, men and women are different, though still equal, before God. God created these differences not to frustrate life, but to enhance it. And that is why earlier, verse 18, God said that he would make a helper suitable for him. Now notice verse 24. Even before they have parents, God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, many of you have experienced or been there to experience someone else have that great moment when a woman gives birth and then holds that newborn child in her arms. And you might be tempted at that moment to say, could any other relationship be more valuable than this? Is anything more precious and important than a mother with her child? However, you'd be wrong for that relationship will come to an end. And the relationship with her spouse is till death do us part. You know, when we fail to separate from parents, we have a host of problems in marriage. Yes, we're to honor mother and father till we die, but the marriage should now be the primary place for encouragement, for finances, for counsel. And too often, though, attachment to one's parents or to one's children becomes an obstacle in marriage. One keeps calling up mom and for counsel and friendship, and the spouse becomes embittered as they often hear, well, my mom really thinks that we should. Well, yes, you can call and you can ask, but they shouldn't be your primary source. Leave your mother and father and cleave to your spouse. Or sometimes, 
the children become a hindrance to the marriage. Perhaps the children's wishes take precedence over prior conversations and commitments the couple made. Or all time and energy goes to the children so that there's little left over for the spouse. Your children should know that you love them, but that your love for them is not the same as your love for your spouse. That love is different and greater. And that doesn't have to be a competition. It's just different. So we begin by saying that God made a perfect partner for Adam in a way that no other creature could fulfill that role. But why did Adam even need help? Well, because God had given Adam a task. Genesis 1.28, what we call the cultural mandate. There, Genesis 1.28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So to take the earth and turn it to what God intended, the man needed a helper. Now, you should not think that anyway being called a helper is a denigration to women. In fact, in Psalm 121, three times God is called our helper, which exalts being a helper and is not demeaning or servile. Thus, one of the main reasons God gave marriage is for partnership, to work together. And when couples fail to recognize their joint partnership, troubles arise. If marriage is purely about self-fulfillment, self-affirmation, then the marriage will, and often does, end when you no longer feel affirmed and loved. Yet marriage is a union to become one. And I would encourage spouses that in as many ways as possible to live as one. Now there's no verse in the Bible that says this, but his money and her money often leads to problems. It should not be a competition between your career and their career. Your desires, their desires. Your friends and their friends. Rather, it should be our career, our desires, our friends. Now, of course, I'm not saying you can't have any separate friends or you can't desire to do something different on a day. Yet, two becoming one is both sacrificing mine because it is now ours. We are currently in the Major League Baseball playoffs. And if you didn't know, the Houston Astros are playing the Texas Rangers for the first time in history for the American League Championship. And if you've watched baseball, you'll know that sometimes the coach or the manager will tell the batter to sacrifice. I either need you to hit a deep fly ball so the player can score from third, or I need you to bunt so that you can advance a runner. But the batter could go... But that's going to hurt my statistics. I'm not going to look as good at the end of the game. They're going to look at the box score, and I'm going to have one less hit. I'm not doing it. And yet, the player never says that because they know they're part of a team. They're willing to sacrifice their good for the good of the team. And that's what marriage is about. It's no longer about, well, this isn't going to help me. Well, when you married, you said it's no longer about me. It's about us. I and you, we are both committed to us. And one of the best ways to improve your marriage, now I need to pause here and say, one of the challenges about preaching on Ephesians 5, 22 through just about, well, actually about preaching the whole Bible, is we never live these things perfectly. So if you came to 3307 Seymour Road, you might say, Pastor, you don't always live this out. 
and you'd have four children and one spouse going. That's right. So, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and thankfully there's forgiveness for when we fail. But that being said, one of the best ways to improve your marriage is to show appreciation for all those sacrifices they are making. You know, dinner doesn't just pop on the table. Someone had to take time to plan, buy, make, serve the food. The dishes don't just wash themselves. Money doesn't just, poof, appear in the checking account. And we could go on and on. And yet they are making sacrifices, just as you are, for both. And genuinely and regularly thanking your spouse, showing appreciation for the sacrifices they make, and not always pointing out the ones you make, will go a long way in helping your marriage. And sometimes those sacrifices are hard. But that's why we, why we vow to love and honor in sickness and in health, in joy and in adversity, in wealth or in poverty until death do us part. Because God intended us to be partners for life. But God also intended marriage for pleasure. That's our second point. God intended ma- marriage for pleasure. You're one of the best gifts of life is friendship. And God's intention is that your spouse should be a good friend. That you enjoy being with them, building a life together and serving one another. God also intended marriage should be the place where the pleasure of sex is enjoyed. Unlike some people, the Bible is not ashamed to speak of sex. And a whole book, the Song of Solomon, is devoted to two people in love. We should clearly say God gave us this gift for our enjoyment and pleasure. However, we also know the pain that comes when this part of life is wrongly used. A helpful analogy is fire. For fire is great when in the right place. Uh, on a cooktop, or a barbecue pit, or your chimney, your fireplace. But when you get outside of those bounds and it spreads, fire is destructive and harmful. Some of you may remember Daryl and Latavia. Daryl told us once of growing up, being a young kid, and lighting leaves on fire in his backyard, and then throwing the leaves and just with his friend, like, fire, fire! Well, he didn't realize he was about to burn his house down until his aunt came out with a shoe and let him have it. But nonetheless, fire was great! He didn't realize he was unleashing a lot of destruction. And sadly, a lot of people are the same way with sex. They think, this is great, this is wonderful, and they don't realize... Within, when you get it outside of its proper context, you're only unleashing destruction. Yet in the right context, it's great and it's wonderful. So God has given this good gift and he's also explained that marriage is the outlet for it. And now that sin has entered the world, we distort all of our God's good gifts and our desires run amok. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 discusses this topic and he says, Look, yes, this is good. And it's good for men and women to be married. As well, once married, each spouse should seek, how can I serve the other in this regard? Your guess, desires, frequency, many other issues can arise. However, but if both realize their primary concern is how to serve the other rather than how can I be served, then real help and enjoyment can exist. Now, of course, He's not saying that we should be a slave for the other person. No, the point is we should consider our spouse's desires above our own. This rather than our first, second, 
Third, and going on however many impulses, being for our own desires, we seek that for our spouse. You know, your desire should be to use this to serve, not to manipulate, reward, or punish your spouse. And really, the pleasure of intimacy is the cherry on top of a relationship. A healthy marriage is one in which each spouse seeks to enjoy and serve their spouse all the time, not just in moments of intimacy. Sadly, this man's comments reflect many men. Before I was married, I would lie awake at night thinking of all that my fiancé had told me. Now that I'm married, I'm fall asleep before my wife has stopped talking. Wasn't me, by the way, uh, who said that. <laughs> but probably many can relate that when they're dating, oh, you could talk for hours. And you say, how can these people, what is there to talk about? And they talk, 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 and then, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I was listening, I was paying attention. All of marriage, we should seek to serve and care for one another, one another. Of course, there are seasons in life in which functioning makes it hard to spend time together. Young children who get up at night can just leave you exhausted and drained. Older children and chauffeuring them and getting to all their activities can leave barely any time for anything else. Just the daily functions of life, making food, getting everyone dressed, getting everything done in the house can leave you at the end of the day just wanting to collapse. Thus, we have to be cautious about being too prescriptive, but whatever way possible, seek to find time together. I know one couple that committed, we're going to do the dinner dishes together every night. Because if your house is like mine, this wasn't us, by the way, but if your house is like mine, it's chaos till you say, time to do chores. And then it's like a ghost town. You could hear the western music and see the tumbleweed going through quiet and you can have all the quiet time you want because as soon as hey you're here hey you can come help us with the dishes oh i have homework to do and you can have all the time by yourself to do those dishes i've known other couples who have said hey, every night we're gonna go for a walk after dinner it won't be long but hey we just need to catch up or others who've said okay this night every week nothing else is happening we're just going to be together and we could come up with scores of ways and you probably have Ways that I haven't even mentioned. But whatever you do, we make time for what is valuable. So make that time to put time in your relationship. You know, no one ever wakes up and decides, you know, this is the day I'm going to start the trend to neglecting my spouse. So that we end up in a cold and lifeless marriage together. Rather, we slowly drift over time till one day you do wake up and you go, we haven't talked in a long time. We haven't done anything together in a long time. So be purposeful for how you can bless your partner, how you can spend time together. Thus, God gave us marriage for partnership, for pleasure, and also third, God made marriage for procreation. Now, notice I didn't say God made sex for procreation. He did. But God's design is that marriage should be open to an attempt to having children. Now what I just said was in no way controversial for thousands of years. Yet I know that what I just said, many people take quite an offense to. Maybe even you're one of them. It's my life. It's my marriage. It's my body. I can do with it what I want. If we don't want to have children, that's up to us. But isn't that the core issue of salvation, though? That when we come to Christ, we say, I'm no longer doing what 
I want, but what you want. So what does God desire for us to do? Well, in this regard, God clearly commanded, not suggested as an option, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now that definitely means way more than having children. There's a lot, we could spend a whole sermon on what that means, but it does not mean less than having children. Now, of course, this does not mean a couple is sinning that can't have children. Or that there aren't times when marriages will choose because maybe they're elderly or they have some physical inability or they have a genetic condition that they know I shouldn't pass this on to my children. Yet, minus those obvious side discussions that we could have, every marriage should be open to the possibility of having children. And we should realize that children are not an accessory to add to your life. You know, our pictures would look better if we had children here, here, and here. Or that they are going to make your life better. But rather, they're gifts from God for you to raise and steward for His glory. Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. God blesses people with children, not curses them. Yes, Psalm 127 is wisdom literature. And yes, Proverbs 17.25 tells how the foolish son brings grief and accompanying shame on a father. Yet in general, it is true that we are blessed by children. Sadly, though, we all realize that though you might have been praised in the gates of Israel for a quiver full of children, you're often maligned in the grocery store if you have a quiver full. I could never have so many children. Are you really religious? Don't you know what causes that? You know, all of the various snide remarks made to anyone who decides that they should have more than a child or two. Now, to be clear... A married couple is a family regardless of whether they have children or not. Undesired fertility can be heartbreaking. But God does not view that family with no children as an unreal family. Yet we should realize God's intent. The normal pattern for marriage is that every marriage should be open to children. Now you might say, or even here, but look! Yes, yes, we're to fill the earth and subdue it, but we've filled the earth. In fact, we are overpopulating the earth, so I am not going to have children because that command no longer stands. Well, that alarm bell that we're overpopulating the earth was rung for the first time in 1798 by Thomas Malthus, who wrote that the world could not sustain the population that would soon come. At that time, the world had 1 billion people. We now have over 8 billion people. 225 years later, and we still are not having any trouble feeding, clothing, and sustaining everyone on this earth. Nowhere in the world is starvation a recurring issue because the world can't provide. Maybe it is because of wars or other factors. But now experts are actually saying the coming crisis is not overpopulation, but underpopulation as worldwide fertility rates are dropping and we will have more people to care for than people to care for. For them. Sarah and I have done our part. So come on young people. Let's have more children. But sadly it's not just married people. Who are choosing not to have children. 
but also people who have no intent of getting married are choosing to have children. You might again think, well, who cares? That's none of our business. Well, we should care because the children in that are going to be hurt. Now, I'm not saying single parents hurt their children or unmarried parents are going to hurt their children. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if we look at the indicators of what happens, married couples always statistically do better. Study after study shows that married couples double, even triple their wealth in comparison with single friends. Another study showed that men who marry in their 20s make more money by their mid-30s than men who marry after 30, regardless of education level. And we've considered marriage for pleasure, for protection, procreation, but part of that protection is for children. I have up here a book, Them Before Us, by a woman named Katie Faust. I've really enjoyed it. And in that, she made an argument that really stuck with me. She said, Imagine a mother gives birth, and then at some point the mother is going to send, or the nurse will take the child to another room so the mother can rest. Well, eventually the mother will ask for the child back, or they'll bring the child back to nurse. But when they do that, can the mom go down to the nursery ward and go, you know, I'd like that one. Well, of course she couldn't. She can't do that. But the reverse is also true. Can any child be taken by any other parent. Now, of course, sometimes biologically, a parent uh, can't be there, they die, you need adoption, but the child has the right only to be taken by their biological parents. The rights don't just run one way. It's not just the parents who have a right to their child. The child has a right to their parents. And you may have noticed many children who grow up adopted, and then when they get older, what do they want to know? Who are my biological parents? Because our biological parents matter. And then she uses a score of sociological studies across decades, and she shows that children thrive best under three conditions. So if we care about children, we want to see in their parents' relationship, biological parents' permanence, that both biological parents are there for their life. Second, monogamy, in which exactly two parents create a baby. That will always be true. And those two people are irreplaceable in the life of the child. And third, exclusivity. For children, experience diminished outcomes, she writes, when their parents are sexually involved with unrelated adults. You know, back in 1996, which wasn't that long ago, the United States passed the Defense of Marriage Act, passed overwhelmingly by both parties, not just one party, and in it, it states, at bottom, civil society has an interest in maintaining and protecting the institution of heterosexual marriage because of deep and abiding interest in encouraging responsible procreation and child rearing. Simply put, government has an interest in marriage because it has an interest in children. You know, often when we discuss marriage, we forget that children are a factor in this. Now, since 1996 in the Defense of Marriage Act, the studies haven't changed that show the importance of a child being raised by both biological parents who are married. Yet since marriage has moved from the purposes God had to marriage merely being the expression of people's love, we've changed the laws. In other words, our pursuit of love, in that pursuit, we're harming children and the protection God intended for them 
through marriage. Now, the point of all this is not to reduce marriage to making babies, but rather to realize the odd nature of divorcing children from marriage. God calls us to have children, and children are a blessing. But even all that is not enough. We could stop there, and you would have to say, what I said is insufficient to know what God intended marriage to be. Because lastly, we see in Ephesians 5, 22-33, that marriage is a picture. Our fourth and last point, marriage is a picture. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, sorry, verse 31, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God gave us marriage because he wanted us to know about him. Marriage thus can never be about the romantic interest of people, for it has a much greater vision of what God hopes it accomplishes. And it's not just here. For Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 2, Hosea, they all refer to God's relationship with his people of that being of a bride to her husband. You know, the plot line of the Bible, you could say, is God's plan to reconcile his bride to himself through Christ. I say that because the Bible begins, Genesis 2, with talking about marriage, and then it ends with what Keith read for us earlier, Revelation 19.6, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in between the beginning and the end is Christ rescuing, restoring, and redeeming his bride. Thus, we have to realize that the way we live as married people can either lie about God or proclaim his truth. The marriage picture teaches us many things about God and our relationship, but let's just briefly note three. You can even kind of see these clear implications here from Ephesians 5 and then the rest of the scriptures. And here, because it'll say, just as, or as also Christ. So each time it's saying, this is an aspect of marriage that you understand as it also relates to Christ. First, marriage pictures God's faithful, sacrificial love in that he pursues his bride. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is not just the pursuit of any bride, though. For this is God, like Hosea the prophet in the Old Testament, pursuing a faithless and adulterous bride. Now God's love is not just warm, fuzzy feelings, but rather concrete, sacrificial actions. It's a love that pursues and is faithful, even when the other is not. And our marriages should have that same type of committed, sacrificial love. I'm sure that for some of you, your marriages have turned out differently than you hoped. The warm, exciting love has grown cold, distant, inattentive, and maybe even harsh. Sadly, even professing Christians say, well, life is too short to be unhappy. Just get a divorce. Yes, God intended your marriage to bring you pleasure, but more than that, he intended for it to reflect his faithful love. Thus, making your spouse happy or being happy in your spouse is not reason to leave your marriage or encourage others to do so. Your love can continue to be given even when the emotions have dried up. As one man said, love is not to be the victim of our emotions, 
but is to be a servant of our wills. Love is not to be a victim of our emotions, but a servant to our wills. And if your marriage is in that state, we want to help. Talk to Keith or myself or some of the women in the church. But fight for your marriage as long as you can and don't throw in the towel. You know, all marriages have seasons and for the glory of God, seek to reflect, reflect that faithful, sacrificial love even if the relationship is not what you desire. Now, I also know this message can be hard because for some of you, you've wanted to have that faithful marriage and your spouse hasn't kept up the other end. You've wanted to do what's right, but you are unable to force them to do what is right. And know that God has redemption. God can restore anything and he can fix what is broken. So you may never remarry them, but God can use you even if this is not gone the way you desire. Well, second... Marriage pictures our proper response to God. This is verse 23 that says, The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is of the church. What is the church or the wife to do? Follow their leadership. Now, we're going to discuss this a lot more next week, but for now, it's showing that our response to God's love is to love Him back and obey Him. Thus, James in chapter 4 will call our failure to obey adultery. And God expresses his righteous and godly good jealousy when we have undivided, sorry, when we have divided love for him. You know, God's jealousy is the pure jealousy that wants what's the best for us, not the selfish jealousy we often consider. You imagine for a second, you're sitting there, you're watching something, or you're with your spouse, and they lean over and they say, Honey, of all my lovers, I love you best. You wouldn't go, oh, that's so sweet. I'm number one. You would say, wait, of all, how many are there? In the same way, God desires that our love be only for him. That we don't say, God, of all the options, you're really good. But I also find it and list all the other things we crave. God is perfect and he desires that we recognize that nothing else in life will satisfy us outside of him. And so our response is to joyfully obey, because that will bring us blessing. Well, third, lastly, in this wonderful gift of marriage, we get a glimpse of the unity in the Trinity. In a pale reflection of one God and three persons, so marriage unites the two into one. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Here in the marriage relationship, there can exist a pale but real reflection of the social fellowship within God's own being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The ultimate aim of marriage is to reflect God's image, to reflect the glory of His grace and being. This means that marriage can never be an end in itself. It exists for a greater purpose than its own fulfillment. When two people are joined in the Lord... Something of the glory of God should be seen. The Father's love for His Son, the Son's love for His Father, the Spirit's love for both, these should be at least sensed and tasted in Christian marriage. God demonstrated His glory most clearly in the sacrifice of His Son. So a marriage demonstrates the glory of God when in its heart there is a spirit of self-sacrificing love. And the radical thing, though, is as we give ourselves to serve the other, as we more reflect God, the more joy we get. 
The story, I believe to be true, is told of one of King Cyrus's generals whose wife was charged with treachery. She was called before the king and condemned to die. Her husband, the general, didn't realize what had happened, and when he was apprised of it, he came hurrying in. When he heard the sentence, he threw himself prostrate before Cyrus and said, Oh, sire, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Cyrus was so touched that he said, Love like that must not be spoiled by death, and he let the wife go free. As they walked happily away, the husband said, Did you notice how kindly the king looked upon us when he gave you a free pardon? She replied, I had not eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die for me. You know, as we look at Christ and we wonder at how he is, what he did and what he does for us, we should marvel. And the more we marvel and rejoice at what Christ did for us and who he is, the more our marriages will reflect him and be a light to this world. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us? No marriage is made up of perfect spouses, or even one perfect spouse, but every marriage, every marriage of our church is filled with two sinners. And so, Lord, we sin against one another. We're selfish. We act in ways we shouldn't. Lord, we know in this body are people who've had broken marriages, and the hurt and the pain is real. And so, Lord, we long for that day when our marriages reflect the marriage to come, and the wedding supper of the Lamb. Lord, we long for that day when all these things are perfect, because we are with you forever. So Lord, where needed, would you bring healing and comfort? Where needed, would you restore relationships? Where needed, would you stir new joy, new partnership, new pleasure in the marriages here in this body? It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.